This morning's, this morning's message, our uh, fourth Advent message, comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. The title for this morning's message is God's Goodness Proclaimed. As we continue our theme of the goodness of God that we see in Advent. God's goodness proclaimed from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive... In your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold... I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we read the account of that amazing event that took place 2,000 years ago, The angel Gabriel announcing to the Virgin Mary that she would conceive and give birth to a son in fulfillment of prophecy. That the Messiah will finally come. And Father, we pray that as we look into this passage this morning, we pray that as we continue to celebrate the Advent season, the Advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our minds and our hearts and our souls by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the power of your word. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so we've been in the, uh, the Garden of Eden over the last three Sundays, and 
We've been in the garden, and I, I wanted to do that because I believe that in order to fully grasp the magnitude of the birth of Christ, in order to fully understand just how massive that event was, we need to understand how it all began. We need to understand where it all began. And so now at this point in world history, meaning Luke chapter 1, at this point in world history, depending on one's calculations, it's been somewhere between four and 6,000 years since Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. Banished from the presence of God. There has been somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 years of suffering, misery, sin, heartache, grief, and darkness. But now, that is all about to change. And along the way, God has even made additional promises. For example, to Abraham telling Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 that he would be a blessing to all nations, that somehow he and his physical descendants would be a blessing to all the world. That was 2,000 years before the coming of Christ. 2,000 years. So how is that? At this point in history, the Jews are probably starting to wonder how... How have they been a blessing to all nations? How has the tiny nation of Israel been a blessing to all the world? They are so small. They are so insignificant. They have been ruled for nearly 600 years by a foreign power. A blessing to all nations? Really? At this point in world history, most of the world doesn't even know that Israel exists. And then a thousand years prior to the birth of Christ, God gave a promise to King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he would have a descendant, that he would have a son who would rule upon his throne and of his kingdom there would be no end. There would be no limits. Not only to the length of time of his descendant's kingdom, but of the extent of his realm, there would be no end. Yet, the Davidic dynasty does come to an end. In fact, within two generations, the kingdom that David established is divided in half. And within 400 years, the throne of David, the Davidic dynasty comes to a complete end with the sacking of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. So then where is the fulfillment of these promises? Where is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 that was given some 4,000 years earlier that God would someday send a Redeemer to crush the head of the serpent? Where is the promise given to Abraham 2,000 years ago, that his posterity would be a blessing to all nations? Where is the promise given to King David 1,000 years ago 
That's a long time. These are long periods of time that people have waited. Where is the promise that God gave to King David a thousand years earlier? That he would have a son who would sit upon his throne and of his kingdom there would be no end. You know, if you put yourself in their shoes, the Jews at this point in history are probably starting to think that all of these Old Testament promises sound more like folklore than anything that is rooted in reality or in history. Spiritually speaking, the world that they lived in was a very dark place. Politically speaking, Israel was living in very dark times. They had been ruled by the Roman Empire for the past 60 years. Before that, they had been ruled by the Greeks for 200 years. And then before that, they had been ruled by the Persians. But now, all of that is about to change. All of that is about to change. Not that Christ comes into the world to overthrow the Roman Empire, but their days of living in spiritual darkness, their days of living without hope, their days of not truly being a blessing to all nations is about to change. And so we read in verses 26 and 27 of our text. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Just to put it in its historical setting, this is around the year 3 BC. And there are several interesting points to notice about these opening words that we see in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. First of all, to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. It's interesting to note that because this is indicative of the way God works. Nazareth was a very small podunk town. To put it into modern parlance, you might say that Nazareth was quite ghetto. Nobody wanted to live in Nazareth. Nobody wanted to be from Nazareth. Nobody wanted to be someone who was known to be from Nazareth, right? Many of you remember the words of uh, Nathaniel to Philip when Philip says, we have found the Messiah. It is Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth, really? <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean... If the Messiah comes from Nazareth, boy, aren't we in trouble? God is scraping the bottom of the barrel at this point. If the Messiah comes from Nazareth. But that is the story of Jesus' life. He comes from the lowest of low and is exalted to the highest of high. He is exalted far above every name that can be named. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians chapter 2. This is typically the way God 
works. This is God's M.O., if you will. Abraham is a pagan who is called out of a pagan nation. Moses is running from the law. He's wanted by the Egyptians, and so he flees from Egypt, and he's hiding out in Midian when God calls him to be one of the greatest prophets. David is a lowly shepherd boy whom God calls to be the greatest of all of the kings of Israel. Matthew is a tax collector. The apostle Paul was a murderer and persecutor of the church. But God does this. God works this way in order to receive the greatest glory. When God does this, when he operates in this way, he is communicating to his people and to all people that God does not need anyone. God does not need the rich and the famous and the powerful to accomplish his will in redemptive history. God can find the lowliest person, the most insignificant person from an insignificant family, from an insignificant town to accomplish the greatest good the world has ever known. Because ultimately it is God who does these things. And we simply reap the benefits and the privilege of being used by God to carry out his will. But not only does Jesus come from an insignificant town, Nazareth, and is born in an insignificant town, Bethlehem, little town of Bethlehem, but he comes from insignificant parents. Joseph was a carpenter, just a mere carpenter. And even less is said about Mary. At least we know what Joseph did for a living. We know that he was a carpenter. We also know that he was of the house of David. But do you realize that all we are ever told about Mary in all four Gospels is that she was a virgin and that she was betrothed to Joseph? That's it. We know even less about Mary. So Jesus is born in an insignificant town. From, from an insignificant woman, but it is to this insignificant woman that the angel Gabriel appears and says in verse 28, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. That had to have been an astounding thing to hear. That had to have been an astounding thing for Mary to see. Here is an ordinary girl from an ordinary village, from an ordinary family, and yet the angel Gabriel appears to her and says, the God of creation is with you. The Greek word for greeting is the word Cairo and is usually translated throughout the New Testament as rejoice because it's related to the Greek word kara, which means rejoice or joy. Hence, the new King James Version reads, Rejoice, highly favored one. Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. And yet, to this greeting, 
we are told in verse 29 that she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern, she tried to figure out what sort of greeting this might be. Certainly there were several things that caused Mary to sort of scratch her head and try to wonder a bit. First was the phrase, O favored one. What does he mean by that? In what way am I a favored one? How is she favored? And by whom is she favored? You have to remember that angels were not something that Mary saw every day. right? It's not something that most of us see every day. It's not something that any of us probably have ever seen. If you, if you had, I'd love to hear about it. So... She's wondering, who are you and how am I favored and by whom? Because Mary knew that she was a nobody from nowhere. I'm not related to anyone important. I'm just an ordinary girl from an ordinary town. But again, this is how God works. This is what makes God's grace so amazing. Jesus did not come just for the rich and the powerful. He came for the small and the lowly and the insignificant. He is the Messiah for all people. The second thing the angel says that is troubling to Mary is the Lord is with you. In one sense, she would have understood what that meant and agreed because God is omnipresent. So in one sense, God is with everyone. Because God is everywhere, and so I get that. But in another sense, she would have been puzzled. What do you mean that God is with me in this place, in the here and now? In what way? The angel answers both of those questions in the following verses. That is, how is Mary favored, and how is God with her? In verse 30, we read, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So there it is again. He has said it twice. O favored one, and you have found favor with God. But how so? Six things. Six ways. Number one, Firstly, the angel simply means that God has smiled upon her. God has smiled upon Mary. Not because she deserves it, not because she has earned it in some way. There is nothing particularly special about Mary. If there was, the biblical writers would have told us that. Now, sure, she was a a good Jewish girl, But she was no better than any other Jewish girl. She was an ordinary girl from an ordinary family in an ordinary town. In fact, the Greek word for favor is the word that is ordinarily translated as grace. And as we know, God's grace is always unmerited. That's what makes it grace. You don't deserve this, Mary. But God, for some reason known only to him, has chosen you out of the mass of humanity, out of every Jewish girl in Israel, God has chosen you to be the mother of the Son of God. 
That's the first way in which favor has come upon Mary. The second thing it means that she has found favor with God is from the first half of verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Well, that's an interesting thing considering that she's a virgin. Right? She's a bit puzzled by that. In fact, she actually says so in verse 34 when she says, how can this be since I am a virgin? That's, that's a bit puzzling to me what you're saying. But of course, we know now that this was in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. There in Isaiah, Scripture says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now this promise was given to King Ahaz in Jerusalem. When Jerusalem was surrounded by the armies of Syria and northern Israel. And King Ahaz is greatly concerned that Jerusalem is about to be overrun because there is no way that little Jerusalem is going to be able to defeat the armies of Syria and the armies of northern Israel. And so God sends comforting words to King Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah, telling King Ahaz, don't be concerned because God himself will deliver Jerusalem from the hands of their enemies. And in order to bolster your faith, in order for you to know that this will take place, that God will deliver Jerusalem, there is this, I will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So this prophecy in Isaiah 7:14 is fulfilled in a now and not yet aspect. Because we know that Jerusalem is not overthrown, at least not then. In fact, Jerusalem will continue to exist for nearly another 300 years before it falls to the Babylonians. But ultimately, this prophecy is about Christ. This prophecy is about Christ who will deliver God's people from their greatest enemies. Not just the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but from their enemies of sin, death, and Satan. Those are the greatest enemies of humanity. Those are the greatest enemies of God's people. The third indication that Mary has found favor with God is in the last half of verse 31. And you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, pronounced in the Hebrew Yahshua, Yahshua, which literally means Yahweh saves. Literally, that's what the name Joshua means. Yahweh saves or salvation is from Yahweh. Isaiah 7.14 says the child will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel in the Hebrew, which literally means God is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. Thus, the fact that Emmanuel means God is with us 
And Mary is told that she will name her child Salvation is from Yahweh. The names alone make clear that Jesus is not born into the world simply to bring salvation to the world, simply to provide a way of salvation for the world, but rather that Jesus is God himself who has come to deliver his people. God has come in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the angel is trying to get Mary to understand you are going to give birth to God in human form. What an astounding thing to hear. In the incarnation of Christ, the God of Genesis 1-1 steps into our world. He breaks into time, space, and history and does for us what no one else could possibly do. What we could never do for ourselves. Man brought sin and misery into the world and God takes the initiative to fix what man has broken. God takes the initiative to undo what man has ruined. That is amazing grace. The fourth way in which God's favor has come upon Mary is seen in the first part of verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Throughout the Old Testament, El Elyon was a common title for God. And it means God Most High. El Elyon, God Most High. And now here the angel tells Mary that her son will be the Son of the Most High. The Son of El Elyon. What an amazing thing for Mary to hear. He will be the son of El Elyon? How can that be? Throughout the Old Testament, the kings of Israel, at least those of the Davidic dynasty, were often referred to as the son of God because they were the anointed one by God who, whose job it was to rule the people of God as ambassadors for God, as it will. Ultimately, even when they had physical kings, everyone understood God is our king. The person who sits upon the throne simply functions on behalf of God in order to govern the nation of Israel. And so the kings in the Old Testament were often referred to as the Son of God. For example, we see that kind of language in the second Psalm. Psalm uh, Psalm 2, beginning in verse 7, Scripture says this, talking about the kings of Israel, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Of course, we now know that that is a reference to Christ, but in the Old Testament they would have understood this to be the language about the kings of Israel. Psalm 2 goes on to say in verses 10 to 12, now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. The Old Testament readers would have understood this language to be about the Davidic kings. Of course, New Testament readers now understand that ultimately this is all about Christ. Thus, when the angel Gabriel says to Mary he will be the son of the Most High, he means that he will be a son unlike any of the other former kings of Israel. Unlike any of the kings that have lived in the past who sat upon the throne of David. How so? How will he be different from David and Solomon and those who came after them. The angel explains in verses 32 and 33, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is clearly a reference to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God gives a promise to David through Nathan the prophet. There in 2 Samuel chapter 7, through Nathan the prophet, God says this to David in verses 12 and 13, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What the angel is telling Mary is that this prophecy given to David a thousand years ago is being fulfilled in the here and now. This prophecy is coming into being. In other words, the king has come. The king has finally come to establish his kingdom to which there will be no end. Unlike the earthly kingdoms of Israel and Judah, which fell to the Assyrians and then to the Babylonians, the kingdom that Christ will establish will be eternal. Unlike the kings of Israel and Judah, this king, Christ the king, will deliver his people once for all from their greatest enemies. Sin, Satan, and death. This is what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 12, for example. There in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has just finished casting a demon out of a man. And the crowd is amazed by what they see. And it's interesting that the crowd specifically asks the question, can this be the son of David? Because they understood that when that prophecy was fulfilled, if you're going to have a king who's going to sit upon a throne and of his kingdom there will be no end, he must be a king of amazing power and influence. Could this be the son of of David, they ask. Of course, the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting demons out by the power of Satan himself. And Jesus responds in Matthew chapter 12 by saying in verse 25, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. 
And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, if Satan is casting out his own demons from people that they've gone through the trouble of actually possessing, that doesn't make any sense. That seems self-defeating. Why would Satan do that? But then Jesus goes on to say in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 12, But if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, listen to what he says next, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom is here, which means that the king is here. The king has come. He then says in verse 29, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Do you get what's... Jesus is saying, Satan is the strong man who has possession of virtually the entire world. He does what he wants in the world with humanity. And then the king comes and he binds the strong man and he begins to plunder his goods. He begins to take people away from Satan out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of his beloved son. He redeems them. He plunders Satan's good. Christ has come to set the captives free, to set people free from the bondage of sin, Satan, and death. This is... Glorious news. And of course, Mary is a bit overwhelmed by all of this, as you can imagine. She's a bit shocked by what she is hearing, and so she asks in verse 34, How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, notice that her question is legitimately an innocent question, and it is very different than the question that is asked by Zechariah back in verse 18. There, the angel tells Zechariah that his barren wife, who is far along in years, is pregnant and will bear a son, and you will call his name John. And Zechariah asks, how do I know this is true? How do I know that this is actually going to happen? And the angel Gabriel replies, and I have, to I have to imagine that Gabriel replied with a bit of a snarky tone in his voice and says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. In other words, Zechariah, who do you think you're talking to? Who do you think I am? Where do you think I came from? Why do you think I'm here? You know that Zechariah, as soon as he heard Gabriel's response, thought to himself, yeah, that was a dumb question. 
But alas, it was too late, and the angel gave him proof, right? You want proof? Me being here is not enough? I'll give you proof. You're not going to be able to say a word until your son is born. Mary, on the other hand, is asking a very legitimate question. In other words, she's thinking to herself, you see, Zechariah was married. He had a wife. Mary is thinking to herself, and I'm going to embellish a little bit. Okay, I get what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. And, and I believe you. I'm just confused as to how this is going to happen. I mean, I'm not even married yet. I'm betrothed to Joseph. Uh, I'm a virgin. I mean, are you saying we're going to expedite the marriage? I'm going to get married sooner than I thought. I mean, how, how, how exactly is this going to take place? It's an innocent question, and it's a legitimate question. And so Gabriel does not respond in the way that he responded to Zechariah. Gabriel simply answers her question in verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Amazing language Gabriel uses. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is creation language. That the angel is borrowing from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Listen, and the Spirit of God was hovering, was overshadowing the face of the deep. Just as physical darkness once covered the entire earth, and the Holy Spirit then comes over the earth, overshadows the earth, and then God says, let there be light, and there was light, so now the world is covered in spiritual darkness. And the Holy Spirit comes over Mary. The Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. And soon God the Father will say, let there be light and there will be light. And light will come into this incredibly dark world in the form of Jesus Christ. The angel Gabriel is using creation language because a new creation is about to begin Christ is the second Adam who will start a new humanity of all those who will live eternally this is what the apostle John understands and why John as well draws heavily from the opening words of Genesis when he wrote his gospel, the gospel of John. There in the opening words he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, listen, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Spirit of God hovers over 
Mary. And light comes into the world. The angel then gives her information to bolster her faith. Though she doesn't ask for a sign, he gives her a sign anyways. In verse 36, he says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary knew that Elizabeth was barren, well advanced in age, and thus this would have been a clear sign to Mary that this is from God, because nothing will be impossible with God. And then Mary's response is quite amazing. Again, unlike Zechariah, who wanted proof from the angel, Mary's response is simply to say, none of this makes any sense. But so be it. So be it. Verse 38, she says, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary is a great and wonderful example for all of us. To be able to say as we read God's word and what God expects of us and what God demands of us, to be able to say, You know what, God? What I'm reading doesn't make a lot of sense, and it seems difficult, but let it be to me according to your word. In the end, what we see is God's goodness being proclaimed by the angel Gabriel to Mary. The same goodness we saw back in the Garden of Eden. The same goodness which created Adam and Eve in the first place because God desired to share his goodness with someone outside of himself. The same goodness that moved God to make the promise of a redeemer even in the midst of their enormous sin against God, the same goodness that moves God to promise to send a Redeemer someday to deliver them from their sin, the same goodness that moved God with compassion to make clothing for them, to care for them, even though they have sinned against Him. It is this goodness, the goodness of God, that the angel proclaims to Mary. And that is what we celebrate today and tomorrow on Christmas Day. We celebrate the amazing goodness of God that was preeminently displayed in the incarnation of His Son, Jesus Christ, and ultimately displayed at the cross. The cross, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ just magnifies the amazing goodness of God toward us. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, we are amazed by your grace and mercy and love. We are amazed by your goodness to such sinful creatures who are so undeserving 
of your goodness and mercy and love. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for being willing, voluntarily stepping out of the glory of heaven to be born as an infant in Bethlehem, to take on human form, to be born the second Adam, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we love you, we worship and adore you. In Christ's name, amen.